Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 16th, we are studying James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Today's text brings us to the theological heart and center of the epistle of James. How can Christians remain steadfast in the trials that come? How can they hold up under the temptations that stem from our own sinful desire? This is the work of our Heavenly Father who does this for us. He has brought us forth as his children through his word, and he continues to give us every good gift from above. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. Pastor Boo serves at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much for having me back. Pastor Boo, as we get started this morning, give us some context in the book of James. We haven't come too far. We're only in verse 12 here of the first chapter. But any background information that's helpful in this epistle going forward into the text for today? Well, thus far, James has been getting the point across that the people he's writing to are a people who are going to face trials and tribulations, that they are going to be a people, if they are of Christ, that they're going to be people who need to live and act and be different than the rest of the world. And so, as you said, this is the heart of it. So really, there's just been an introduction, and now we're getting into the meat of it. And that is, how can I live as a Christian? That is the the main question that James is answering. We In the first two episodes on this series, we've, we've dug into that a little bit, that James is doing something different than what we're often used to seeing from Paul. And so we need to, we need to approach this epistle not with that same lens, but take James on his own terms, make sure we hear what he is saying and don't put into his mouth or into his pen uh, words that he doesn't intend to say. Right. Well, that's what's wonderful about the the Holy Spirit's decision to to give us the scriptures through through mere men, because what we have are different perspectives, different audiences, different um, expectations for the text. And right, if you take James and you put him directly up against Paul to say that these should sound the same, well, then I think that would be not only erroneous, but it also wouldn't be very fruitful for us if the Scripture were to just tell us the same thing over and over and over again. But rather, James has a different audience than James, uh, uh, pardon me, than Paul. And what we're going to find is that because of that, he focuses on different things. And sometimes those things sound contradictory, and sometimes they sound like they're at odds with the rest of what maybe we as Lutherans preach and teach all the time, and that's because we as Lutherans, uh, well, we really like we really like St. Paul. So when we get to James, it can kind of be a little abrasive if we're not understanding the proper context or lens through which to understand what he's saying. Hmm. So what, what lens should we put on to understand James, Pastor Boo? Well, you know, there's always that obligatory disclaimer to say that whenever you're reading James, remember his audience. I mean, whenever you're reading any book of the Bible, you should try to consider who the original audience is, of course. But in this case, this isn't a treatise on how to become saved. This is a letter to Christians, people who are already redeemed by the blood of Christ, people who are already saved, and yet they're facing struggles. And so when we understand it from that point of view— then James is giving us a treatise, so to speak, on how to live out that faith every day and also in the face of trials. 
And it's not like James is absent of the gospel by any means. <laughs> In fact, today's text includes some of the clearest gospel that you do get within the, the letter of James. In the introductory episode of this series with Dr. Giese, he suggested that what, what I said in the opening was not something that I thought of, what, what Dr. Giese taught me, that verses 17 and 18 that we'll look at today really form the theological heart and center of this epistle, and that everything that James is writing is based upon what he will say concerning who the one true God is and how he's the one who has brought us forth. And, and keeping that at the center really helps us as Lutherans who may be a bit uncomfortable with, with this language sometimes. I think it, it's going to help us really appreciate it and take it to heart so that we, we too, as the redeemed people of God, find a, a great use for this epistle. It's, it's very short, but it's very precise. It's very, it's very sharp. It's, it's very vivid, as we will see again today. The imagery that James uses in this epistle is, is some of the most powerful throughout the scriptures of the, the pictures that he paints in our minds. Uh, this is not, not some dry treatise by any means, but a very, very sharp sermon that he's preaching. Any, any further comments, introductory material before we dig into this text itself? Well, only to say that, as we'll see, even from the first verse for today's uh, study, we're going to see that it can sound like law, but it also really ends up being gospel if you understand it in its full context. So yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So James chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That is the text for today, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Pastor Boo, one of the features throughout the book of James is that he seems to be preaching quite a bit on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of references that can be made to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, certainly other places of Jesus' words as well. But those three chapters in Matthew's Gospel really stand out. And the very first word that we've got in our text today is one of those connections. Blessed is the man. We've got a, a beatitude here, and, and Jesus gives those. That's a very prominent feature in the Sermon on the Mount. Take us into some of those connections. Absolutely, right? So, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, as you mentioned. Blessed are, other, are, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Also, Jesus beatitude language. And now we have, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. And so, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really in this same in the same vein as all of the other beatitudes, and that is that the blessed part isn't a, may you be blessed if you do this. And it's not even really just a, whoever's doing this is blessed. But really, it is a judgment. Um, the opposite of blessed then might be woe is the man. In this case, it's blessed or blessed is the man who right, remains steadfast under trial. And so what are the trials though, right? Well, in the same way, we see Matthew 10, we see Jesus's Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted, but not for if you're persecuted, so to speak, for doing the things that you shouldn't be doing, but rather persecuted for righteousness sake. And then blessed are those when uh, others revile you, not because you're not doing the good things, but because you're being persecuted falsely on his account. And so the, the context here in James is the same. 
that is the trials he's talking about are not ones that you bring about yourself because you've given in to temptation to sin. He's definitely going to expound on that in a minute, but rather blessed are you when you endure trials that come about because of your faith or because of your faithfulness or because you're a Jesus follower. And so for the people who, to whom he's writing, that's a high likelihood that just by virtue of being Christians and even more so by living the way Christ wants them to live, well, they're going to be persecuted and they're going to go under trials. It's, it's hard. And so he says the judgment for you is that when you are tested, you're going to be found blessed. And that's why I say there's a little bit of gospel in there too. You know, James earlier, verses two and three, he's already made it clear that, that you know, joy is the attitude that we should have when we face these trials, when our faith is tested, because God's going to use those things to strengthen our faith. And so you're going to be found blessed when you maintain, when you stand the test of, uh, of all these different things against your faith. The the connection between this verse and verse two and three is very striking. That, that the joy that he starts with there in verse two. Well, how is it that I can be joyful? Part of it is right here in verse twelve that I can be joyful because I am a blessed one of God. This is his judgment upon me. His verdict, maybe judgment. I think sometimes in English strikes us as a has a very or can have a negative connotation in English. Maybe a a verdict that God pronounces upon us. He declares us blessed in His Son Jesus Christ, which is where the end of of the text is going to take us. It's going to be hard, I think, throughout this, Pastor Boo. As I was reflecting on this text, it's hard to go verse by verse in James. You you really have to consider big chunks together, and which is I think is true throughout the scriptures. But but some places it's easier to go, okay, we'll take this verse, this verse, this verse, but it's hard not to let these these verses bleed together like that, particularly in the book of James with the way that he he uh, blends it together so nicely for us. One one thing I want to come back to a bit is on this matter of the trials. I'm I'm right with you that the the trials that are in mind certainly include those that we receive precisely because we are Christians, that that the world will persecute us for being Christians, just as Jesus says in his Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, and that this shouldn't, we should not think of the trials that we bring upon ourselves by the sinful actions, the feelings, thoughts that we, we have and we do. Particularly like uh, St. Peter brings this up, I think in 1 Peter chapter 4, he talks about when you suffer, don't suffer for doing what's evil, suffer for, for doing what's right, a similar line of thinking. But I, I, I want to expand it a little bit, I think, that, that the trials, some, sometimes the trials that we face in this life come to us because we live in a world that is corrupted by our sin, and it's not necessarily due to a particular sin of mine. Such, for example, the book of Job comes to mind, and James will bring up the, the example of Job later in this epistle. Job suffered not necessarily because of any particular sin that he committed, but for entirely different reasons. And, and so that the trials, I think we could say, are perhaps a bit broader than just those that we face for the sake of being Christian, but also the trials, the evil, the suffering that is ours, the suffering against which we pray when we say, deliver us from evil. That includes the evil that would attack us from without, even when it's not caused directly by anything that we did, but rather the fact that we live in a world that's corrupted by evil. Does that make sense? It does, and I don't disagree with you at all. Um, but even when I think about Job, why is Job undergoing these trials? Well, mm. it's because he's being accused. And mm. what is the accusation? The accusation is that his faith would not withstand trials. God, he only loves you because he's got it all good. And mm. so when the Christian faces the evil in this world, then the struggle oftentimes that the Christian is going to have with those things is because they are set apart people of faith. Mm. And otherwise they might revel in the same things that otherwise would, would be a trial for them. So no, mm. you're absolutely right. But like, for instance, if one of the trials is a severe sickness in their, li their life, 
well, obviously, even unbelievers undergo sickness and, and, and death, and so those things are frightening, and they're great trials. Um, but um, yeah, so I think that all of that's in, inclusive. But the reason why I kind of say this has to do with their, their faith is not only sort of that connection to the Beatitudes that I see, but also that we're going to later, or James is going to later, as you said, it just pours one verse into the other, is going to later connect um, the, 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 the opposite, and that is that the temptations that you face mm -hmm. um, come about because of your sin. And so if you have one is the trials come about and you're struggling with those things in this world because you're set apart. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. You're not part of this world anymore. You just don't fit. Whereas the other part is, but when you give in to sin, then that's really your, the old self, the old man kind of giving into that's Pauline language, but you know, that's giving into that. Um, and we'll, we'll look at that, but yeah, no, absolutely. I think definitely broadening is important because you don't want to just, you don't want to just fall back on being persecuted for righteousness sake. Every time you undergo something, sometimes you undergo a trial just because the world is tough. Mm. And well, and, and but I think the the way that you put it, particularly with the example of Job, is very helpful. That as Christians, these trials do come upon us. As I mean, we're receiving them, we're facing them as Christians in a different way than the world. And, and so, in in that sense, there is still a very distinctive way that we receive those things as Christians, which is, I think, where James is going to go as he sets up this this compare and contrast here. And and we'll see this throughout the book of James that you get this two there's two ways you, you either go this way or you either or you go that way there's no middle ground and and here is is one of those those examples already here at the very beginning of the book we'll see it later with wisdom from above or wisdom from below uh, friendship with god or friendship from the world you've got these two ways very characteristic of the book of james he, he borrows that gets that from wisdom literature psalms proverbs ecclesiastes from the Old Testament. So, so we've got that here. Now, now before we get to that contrast, James has, has more images here in verse 12 for us. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, there's another connection to verses two and three. He will receive the crown of life. That's another picture. So I guess there's probably at least two pictures to talk about there. Let's, let's look at the, what's this test that he's talking about first. Well, absolutely. So, so you have this clause like, "For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life," and, and maybe not everybody, but I've encountered many folks in my own ministry, and then even in my own life, sort of pre-Lutheranism, um, where you look at this, and it seems like God is setting up, or James in this case is setting up this idea of, in order to receive the crown of life, then one must withstand the test. And the test being something that you have to do. So, and I think this is a misunderstanding in general about tests. And it's also a misunderstanding about maybe what's going on here in the text. To start with the general, you know, when you get a test in school, for instance, we often, and especially young people often think of it as, well, I have to do this in order to pass. As opposed to the test or the examination being just that. The instructor, the prof, the teacher is seeing what you know. So like in confirmation, I always tell my confirmation kids, listen, the, the end of the exam before confirmation isn't about you um, uh, knowing all these things. It's about examining, giving you the opportunity to demonstrate what you already know. It's not trying to trip you up. So in the same way here, the test here is, is like that of – examining something for purity, examining something for content. So when he has stood the test, that is when he's been examined by God, he's going to be found to, if one is found, right, that they'll be with, withstanding the whole test, they'll be found genuine, and they'll receive the crown of life. It's, uh, Linsky points out this coin analogy, and I don't know if he got it from somewhere else, but it's a pretty good one. And that is that if you have like a coin, and you want to examine it to see if it's solid gold, you do that, and the examination determines whether or not it's gold or if it's partial gold or false. And it's not that examination which made the coin gold. It's not the examination or the test that, that, that 
gave it its gold characteristics, but rather just examined it. And so if we understand this within the gospel, then, you know, when you, you – all these trials you're facing, brothers, when you stand them, when you withstand them, when you've stood the test, you're going to receive the crown of life. And then, of course, the crown there is if we're reading him like we would read Paul, then we're going to think – we're going to think the the laurel reef crown, which is the victor's prize for winning the race. Um, but maybe not. Maybe not in James. James is not necessarily talking to Greeks. Um, he's talking mostly to Jewish Christians. They probably wouldn't have been as excited by that sort of analogy. So does the crown mean something different here? Well, a lot of ink has been spilled on it, but perhaps here we're talking about royalty, the idea that you will reign with Christ as priests and kings, the Bible talks about, but mostly that you are inheriting a kingdom. And that's what James talks about earlier on. So those are imageries where it, James brings it in, and it makes a lot more sense if you really understand it from the point of view of the people who are first hearing it. I think that's a, a really good point. And to, and to keep all that together, I mean, again, to, let's think about Jesus' Beatitudes again, the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, there, there you have that kingdom language combined with the Beatitudes. I mean, again, that, that full context of Matthew chapter 5, that imagery. I think I think that's very helpful to to do a bit of compare and contrast with the way Paul might use a phrase like this, but where James perhaps is is having a bit of a different emphasis for us, that this is the the reward. Uh, no, I, I'm falling into that Pauline language again, aren't I? Uh, this is the this is what it means to reign with Christ is to go through trials with Christ. He being the one that went through these trials first. Now we go through them having been begotten, made as his own in his word, to, to borrow from language later in this text. Right, later. Yeah, I mean, and even and even the language of, of testing there, uh, that language of testing can be used of, you used Linsky's example, but I think, I mean, I don't know exactly where Linsky would have gotten it from, but the, other than it's there in the Greek language itself, this Greek word is used of the testing of right. precious metals. And the idea is that the the refining process would burn away that which is is impure, that which is dross, and leave only the metal, show forth what truly is the gold. And I mean, put that together with this image of the crown of life. This is what God is giving to us. This is what He's He's showing us is ours through these through the testing. It's it's showing us this is what is really yours. And that's where that's where the joy comes from. That's that's where the the steadfastness comes from is to see that gift that God has truly given, and He's He's promised it to those who love Him. And I think you know the danger to, there. Sometimes we'll hear well. Do I really love God? Well, that, that's not the right question to be asking here, right. right? You do love God. I mean, Peter preaches that way in his epistle, and I, I think James has that same thing in mind. So these, yeah, these images really do come together in this in this first verse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned that the the word itself is the word that the Greeks would have used to talk about testing something for genuous, right? In terms of in terms of making something. Uh, valuable, making something genuine, uh, there's a completely different word for that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, I mean, so let's, any, any further comments on, on that verse, Pastor Boo? I, I want to, I think we'll pick up the other verse on the other side. So if there's any, anything left in that first verse, which is then going to propel us forward into the compare and contrast, let's, let's pick it up and then we'll take the break. Only just to say that, you know, using this crown of life, right, it connects also to Revelation, um, Revelation talks about, you know, uh, you'll be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation and be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so this, this idea of being co-rulers with Christ, being royalty for people who are oppressed, people who are under subjugation, that is a dramatic image which demonstrates the surpassing worth of salvation, much more than even mere gold. Right. And there again, that's the gospel for us here in the book of James. It's not just all law, but it all is all founded in this gift, the crown of life that God is giving in his son, Jesus Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. 
LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way with the love of Christ. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. Tuesday's Rumination Law and Gospel will include both myself, Tom Baker, and Mark Smith in preparing you to sing the hymn of the week for the following Sunday, which always focuses on the salvation won for us by the life, death, and resurrection of both Jesus and through Him, our death and resurrection. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. It is Tuesday, June 16th, and we are looking at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 with the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. He serves as pastor at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 12. James gives us, blessed is the man, a beatitude, a gift of God. This is his verdict upon us in Christ Jesus. And, and he spent a lot of time talking about trials, in this first section, in, in some ways, verse 12 functions as a, a bit of a hinge between everything that's come before this in the book of James and then into what he's about to get into. And so with this matter of, of trials and the testing, this showing what is genuine, the question might arise in a Christian's mind, well, well, who's doing this and to, to what intention? And so James is going to tell us in no uncertain terms what God's role is in all of this. And so he, he wants to put out of our minds right away, God is not tempting you. Help, help us into that. Right. So, you know, really the rest of everything we're going to talk about today is James's argument, so to speak, that God is not the one that is going to be leading you into sin, that only good things come from God. And so, yeah, he, he, he's been talking about trials, and this is why earlier I said that I, I kind of like to think of the trials um, as those coming about from faithfulness because the idea that they might get is if, well, if the more I struggle, the holier I am, that simplistic understanding of it, then the more I get into trouble, the more opportunities there will be for God to make me holy. And so it's, it's, that's very Pauline too. You know, we can't help it, I guess, but, but right. If I, if, so I can sin so that grace may abound type of idea. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a counterpoint here to say that, listen, there's a difference between trials that come about, whether they're from your, from the sake of your righteousness or from the fact that the world's just a really tough place to live in because of sin, there's a difference between those and temptation. And so, right. So he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, right? So God tempts no one. We, 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 we hear that. We see that in scripture, but we see all the time where God is testing the faith of his faithful, of his, of his children. And so what's the deal here? Well, the definition of test is important. If test earlier uh, is specifically about the, uh, undergoing an examination for purity, th then when you connect that to the trials, then that's a good thing, right? Trials that lead to a test for purity, which is going to demonstrate that you are going to receive the crown of life. Here, there's no such comparison. It's, it's trials. It's actually the same word as earlier, but now we're going to render it temptation because there is no positive 
connection. This is going to be trials that come about because of your sinfulness. Right. And, and that, I mean, that intention, I think, is the key to understanding the difference that, that what James is saying here is that when nothing that will come to you from God is given by him with the intention of leading you away from him or, or of leading you, which would be sin. I mean, that's, that's what sin is, is, is turning away from God rather than toward him. And so nothing that comes from God, none is, is in, is given with that intention such that the only way out that you have is to sin. As, as you said, I mean, that's an interesting way of, of saying it. I think you're right. That as if, as if, okay, I'm going to, to purposely put myself into sin so that I can be strengthened. Well, that, that's the very opposite of what God wants for you. He's not, he's not going to lead you into a situation where the only option you have is to turn away from him, rather the, quite the opposite. God's intention with the test because that, that is very clear from scriptures that he tests. His intention is to show you all of that impurity that's there that you can't rely upon so that you would rely upon that true gift, that true gold that he has given you in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and here, I mean, again, as you said, the word that's translated as tempted is the same word that we've been talking about when it comes to Well, we do so because of the very context. And that's where, you know, we have to, again, we have to keep all this together. You know, don't say I'm being tempted by God. Why? Well, because God can't be tempted with evil and he himself. I mean, that, that use of the word evil here is key to understanding what James is saying when we look at all of it together. Right. Absolutely. You know, don't hang out in the midst of sin as if you think, well, that God's going to give me the opportunity to be strengthened by putting myself in this position. James is very colorfully going to explain what happens when you do that. At the same time, whenever, um, whenever you are facing trials in this life, then there's a distinction to be made between trials and temptations because while trials come about because um, of your righteousness or because of the world, you know, God's not going to be, as you said, putting you in a position where sin's the only other option. If there, if there's really no such thing as a, the devil made me do it defense, then James is pointing out here that you also can't say that God made me do it either. Or if it weren't for you, God, having this sinful situation in my midst and I could only choose sin, then uh, I wouldn't have done it right He's going to really put some personal responsibility onto onto us as he goes forward. Right. Yeah. There, there is no excuse. The devil made me do it, and and you said no excuse that God made me do it. We right. we own our own sin. It's it's our fault at the end of the day. And James is going to put that on us. What about this this matter that God cannot be tempted with evil? What's uh, what's right. the sense of the word evil? Yeah, so you know, the be tempted here, um, we we render it kind of like a verb, and, and and it is, it's a noun and verb combination in the Greek, but it's sort of to render it woodenly. God is untemptable with evil things, and the word we translate here as evil is cacao, which sounds like caca, right? That's where we get this idea of things that are worthless, base, degrading, mm -hmm. and so God. Uh, is not tempted by the same kind of things that we're tempted by. Mm. And the tempted, the things that the evil, which is rightly translated, that we're tempted by is just that. It's worthless. You know, the things that you get tempted by, it's, it's, it's base. It is completely without value. And so God isn't going to be the one that is going to be temptable by such things and so he's not going to then also take such things and 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 use them to tempt us to drive us away now this isn't to say that god doesn't permit temptations to come but rather there's no value to us or god for him to try to not only um well he sends his son to die for us and he redeems us through all of this amazing life death and resurrection of jesus why then would God turn around and then try to trick us into that going away? Basically, that's not in the nature of God. Those sorts of things are um, are worthless. And so what right. happens then? 
So what, what does happen? And so that's where we get. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And, and I like the English translation of lured and enticed because it's kind of like fishing, right? Who or what is doing the luring? What is the bait? Well, the bait is that caca. It's that worthless things that could never tempt God but tempt us all the time. That's another reason why we can know that those things are not from God because God has nothing to do with those sorts of things. And so who is the actor? Well, it's not some tempter. But rather, it's us. It's not God. It's not the accuser even. It's our own desire. It's our own fallen natures that, that, that jump in and start to cling to whatever bait is out there for us. I mean, it seems like whenever we talk about temptation, the, the temptation is always like the fault of the one tempting us. I think that's kind of human nature to take it off of our shoulders, uh, to put responsibility on the other now right we shouldn't tempt others to sin uh, and that is true but james is talking here more about not the tempter or the thing that's tempting us but rather how it's our desire um for those types of things that causes us to take the bait um so who's to blame then for temptations well it's not the other person it's not the person for tempting us it's us it's us. And so God's wanting, I mean, sorry, James is wanting to make sure that we don't think then that this is something that, that God is doing. This isn't part of those same trials that I've been talking to you about, as James would say. Right. No, and this is, this is an important thing to notice that where this progression that James is going to put before us here starts, it starts with my own desire, which does it lures and entices the the fishing picture. I think is is a good one. Some sort of bait that's there that would that would trap us. And I mean, there you know to to use that image, that's not what God is out to do with with a test. He is out to show us what we can truly rely on. He doesn't want us to fall into some kind of trap and to be hooked in some sort of evil way. No, he's he's trying to draw us closer to himself. But our own desire is is actually fighting against the good. And this is, I mean, this is something that we we need to recognize. And it's not that it's not that James doesn't know of a an external tempter, such as the devil, later in in chapter four, he's going to to talk about resist the devil. So it's it's not that he doesn't know or, or have anything to say about external temptations, but rather I think he wants us to recognize that those external temptations and external tempters are going to find within each one of us an ally, an ally to hook onto. And and that ally likes what's out there, the the sinful nature. I mean to use that that Pauline language again, the the old self or the new self that's there, that old self within each one of us, that sinful desire likes this and and is lured by it and is enticed by it. And and to recognize that within each one of us, well, I mean, it prevents us from from making any excuses and, and hopefully helps us to to see where we are in this progression that James is is going to lay out. So he starts in verse 14 that this temptation starts with the luring and enticing of our own desires but then he he expands that picture and again he gets very very vivid here what's the picture that he starts painting for us in verse 15 well right so yeah we have this our own desire or it might have been translated in older versions as our own lusts um, we might think of lust as a particular type of desire, but it is more generic, any sort of desire for the worthless base things that God would have nothing to do with. And then he lays out this poetically morbid description of how the temptation then, once the hook has been set, once the bait has been taken, it can implant itself in us and then grow, grow like a parasite. And, you know, oftentimes in this particular verse, people want to use the imagery of childbirth. But you know what? I think that's childbirth is too beautiful to be able to to use that in, in what James is saying here. No, it's more like a parasite. The 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 seed is implanted and then it when it's conceived, when it's taken root, it then grows, gives birth to sin. And then when that sin is complete, when it's gr grown full fully, 
then it brings forth death. And so there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a space. There's a space between the point where it gives birth to sin and when the sin is fully grown or when the sin is complete in the work that sin does and that is bring death. And it's in that space that when Christians find themselves in this situation, they can repent. Well, anybody can repent, turn away from these things toward God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can get out of it. But but there's no need to rely on that if we practice such practices that make our souls, our spirits inhabitable, inhospitable to things like sin. So if our desire is for the worthless base things of the world, then to to rely on God, to draw closer to God, to rely on God's word, uh, to recognize God's sacrifice, all of these things will mature in us our faith. And then the things that, that our desires are tempted by become less tempting because we're being trained by the Holy Spirit to be closer to God. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what we have here is we have this idea that if you hang out in temptation long enough, then it's going to implant itself in you because your desire is weak, um, especially early on. That's why God's not going to be sending you. He's not going to be sending you temptations so that, you know, he can lead you astray. It's just not in the nature of God. Hmm, right. And that, I mean, I would say that that's true for the Christian early on, and it's it's true for the Christian at, at any point. Yes. Where does St. Saint Paul talks about this? Don't, don't, uh, oh, where is it? First Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And he's, he's talking about temptation there as well. So that, that any Christian, strong or weak, young or old, should take great care with any of this, lest we we followed this progression all the way to death. And I, I like the way that you said it, that there's within it, there's there's all of this uh, space for repentance. So that when I when I see my own sinful desire being lured and enticed, okay, maybe maybe I do go forth to the next step to sin, but it doesn't it doesn't have to go that far. The Holy Spirit is calling me within that space to stop, to repent, to turn around, lest it go the full way. I mean, right. we, we know from the commandments that, that we sin in thought, word, and deed. And, and so we're not, we're not saying within any of this that when I'm having these sinful desires, we're not denying the sinfulness of it. But we are saying, don't let it go the full progression. Because look how harmful it is. It, it starts harming you. It starts harming your neighbor. And, and it ultimately leads to death. And I, I mean, I think we need to understand that both physically and, and spiritually, that, that this death, that where is sin leading? And, and, and why let it go the full way? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, and this is where James is going to go. He's going to turn us and, and give us the good news after this. But, but don't, don't let it go the full way. Stop it where, where it is. And, and that is only the work of, of God. Right. And certainly I wasn't saying that, you know, a Christian can get to the point where he or she is able to resist all sins. But sure. as we mature in the faith, um, that maturity in faith really equates to clinging more and more to Christ. Mm -hmm. And the more you reflect on Christ and the more you cling to Christ, the, the, the closer you are to him, basically, the further away you are from those things which would tempt you. Right. I mean, and even, and probably even the, the more mature you are, the more you recognize your need for Christ more because right. you recognize just how often you've, you've failed in this. And I mean, thinking again, just with Paul in Romans seven, the way that the way that he describes his struggle and I mean, he's a mature Christian there when he's writing Romans and how much does he recognize at that moment that he, he needs Christ all the more. And that's, I mean, it's, that's probably the key. Exactly. Yeah. The thing that the thing it's not that the thing does quits tempting him, but rather he is um, more cognizant of it and he is less willing. He recognizes its baseness more. You know, when we're young, we think um, and just speaking from human terms, we think that all these things are uh, that may be very bad for us. We may think, oh, yeah, I will engage in those things and I don't have to worry about it. And then as you get older, you realize I don't really want to. I really don't want to be doing risky activities anymore because, you know, I have a family. I have more responsibilities. I don't want to. I don't want to risk it. And so that's kind of how I was thinking of the mature Christian who says, 
as you become more mature and the more you 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 recognize how much there is to lose, the less the less enticing those things can be. Right, right. Yeah. No, I, I recently, I recently discovered that that when my when my sons really want to go eat at Dairy Queen, it always sounds like a good idea at first, and then I regret it later. And <laughs> and that's the the maturity I think that you're you're talking about that that we do we recognize that that some things just aren't as good for us in in our maturity, and and that points us toward Christ. What truly right. is good for us. And and that's where James goes. So again, he's he's laid out the one path for us. Desire, sin, death. Now he's going to turn and show us what God truly gives us. And this then does take us back to what he's already said about God, but in a in a positive way. He said God doesn't tempt you. Now he's going to say here's what God gives you. And so it starts with do not be deceived. And then he, I mean we get to this this beautiful, beautiful gospel here in the book of James in verses 17 and 18. So Pastor Boo, we've got about seven minutes here to, to start digging in. You you take the lead. What do we really need to see? Sure. Right. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So as you said, it's not enough for James to say that temptations don't come from God. He insists that every good and perfect gift is from God. So not only that God sends only good and perfect gifts, but rather every good and perfect gift that you encounter in this life is from God. It demonstrates an abundance of how good God is to you. It just puts an exclamation point um, on just how much God is not going to send you uh, temptations to sin. Um, and so if there's anything good in this life, it's a gift of God. So he goes the extra extra step to say and remind his hearers, readers, that um, all that we have a good in this life is from God. And if he's saying every good and perfect gift is from above, I, I sort of picture in my head then his, his readers or hearers looking up. And so while they're looking up, then, then what do you see? Well, you see – the lights of the heavens, the moon, the sun. And so we see coming down from the father of lights, he directs their attention up and then he poetically describes God as the father of the lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What kind of lights, right? Stars, sun, moon. These things are extremely reliable. So reliable that humans for, well, forever have been using them to guide their way at night, to, to make and mark the time in the day. And yet there's still variations, right? We can use, we can mark the different positions of the stars over time. We can mark and understand that um, brightnesses come and go. And so there's this variation or shadow due, due to these changing things, which are otherwise extremely reliable. God not only created those, but he is ultimately reliable. He is completely reliable. Um, and so when we understand that there are good gifts uh, in this life and that they come from God, then we can understand that God isn't going to lead us astray. And um, yeah. go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, the term father of lights is, is, I don't know if it does. I don't think it shows up elsewhere in scripture, but no. that God is the creator of, of these heavenly beings. And even in, in Genesis chapter one, he talks about, let them be for signs and seasons so that they are right. signs of reliability. If those are reliable, how much more is, is God reliable? And, and then on top of that, look what he's done by his own will. Take us into verse 18. Right. So then by his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So brought forth, it's the same Greek word used earlier in verse 15 when he said that sins, sin brings forth death. And, but God, by his own will, brings forth uh, us, uh, that is, gives us the eternal life he mentioned earlier, and he does so by the word of truth. So God doesn't bring temptation. He doesn't brings sin he doesn't he instead he brings us closer to him by his word of truth so that we could be the first fruits of his creatures and then now that word first fruits is really important you know what what is a first fruit well you know it's it's that it's that first 
part of the harvest, generally understood to be the best part of the harvest. Um, that that first that first part of of uh, of all the good gifts that God gives to the world. Well, we actually are part of that. We are the first fruits of what God is planning on doing with the rest of His creation, bringing it to uh, renewal and completion in the last day. And so, if the first fruits are the best and first part of reaping a harvest, something special, something holy, set apart, then that's what he's saying about us, about mankind, is that we are the first fruits, something special to God. And therefore, he's continuously driving home this point that God is only going to draw you closer to him, and that anything that isn't good, anything that is drawing you away from him, it's absolutely not from God. And so he is setting up this contrast between our sinful natures and the things of this world, temptations, and God, who is perfect and holy and reliable and absolutely loves them, loves us to the point where we are his first fruit, something very special. Mm, I, yeah, that word first fruits, Dr. Giese really put me onto this, and I, I wouldn't have noticed it otherwise, perhaps, that, that you've got a, it, it's a term of resurrection. It's a term that looks forward to the last day. Like you were saying, the first fruits, that's what comes in first, but more is coming. And I, I think with that emphasis here in, in James, look, look what God has already done for you as the first fruits, it, what he's already given to you in his son, Jesus Christ, through his word of truth. He's brought you forth already, this good thing that he's doing. And if he's done that for you now already, look at what is soon to come in the resurrection of the dead. It look forward. And now in that looking forward, well, that, that makes a difference in the way that you live today, in the way that you go through these trials, that, that resurrection focus. As just, I mean, when Dr. Gizzi, he said that, it really turned a light on for me. Let's, let's look for that within the book of James. And this is definitely one of those, those places where you see it very, very clearly. The Reverend Dr. Phil Boo, our guest today, looking at James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He serves at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, thanks for being our guest today. Well, thank you once again for having me back. Always a pleasure. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In these trials, God tests. He shows us what is genuine. He burns away the impurities and teaches us to rely on him and him alone. He is not tempting us, not leading us away from him, but rather showing us who he is, the giver of every good gift from above, more reliable than the sun, the moon, the stars, these heavenly lights. God is their creator and God is reliable above all else. He has brought you forth as the first fruits. Look at what he has already given you in his son, Jesus Christ, and look forward to what he will give you on the last day in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <music>